A reading from the Gospel of Mark. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, friends. How are you today? Now, I know most of you, but for many of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Marquez. I'm on staff here at Eastminster. I'm the director of discipleship. And as a part of the team, um, each week it'll be typically myself, Mike Jaderston, who did our announcements, and his brother, Matt, who's in the back over there. Pastor Stan has given us the primary duties of preaching. And so me and the two brothers from a different mother will get to... um, (laughs) We share offices, so we're pretty good friends. Um, so we will do the primary teaching, and we're actually following Pastor Stan's sermon series on Sundays. And so Pastor Stan, two weeks ago, or two Sundays ago, began our series in the Gospel of Mark. And so um, he's, uh, we're actually preaching the sermon before him, so apparently he wants to use our transcripts. Um, <laughs> makes it a little easier for him. So... Um, just kidding, Pastor Stan needs none of our help, and we're actually really grateful that he's giving us young guys opportunities to preach. So um, with that, uh, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. Uh, I thank you for Eastminster Church, Father. I thank you for your Spirit's work here. And now, Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, um, you would be in this place and give us understanding. Uh, Father, we are dead without your word. And so make it come alive to us. Father, may we appreciate it. May we obey it. May we cherish it. May we be shaped by it in these next moments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Irish playwright and poet Oscar Wilde was fond of telling a story of a God-fearing man who lived in the Libyan desert. One day the devil was traveling in that region where this holy man lived And he had noticed off in the distance that he could see some of his own evil workers trying to harass this holy man. Satan's evil workers were doing as much as they could to get this holy man to sin, but 
the holy man would not succumb to their temptations. And so the devil grows a little impatient with his workers, and in uh, an attempt to show his workers how it's done, he calls them and says, come here. He says, your problem is that you are being too crude. He says, watch this. And so Satan goes up next to the holy man and whispers in his ear, your brother has just been named the bishop of Alexandria. All of a sudden, this God-fearing man had a change of countenance. As the presence of jealousy flooded his face, he was filled with contempt, and it caused him to exclaim, I cannot believe they would choose him over me. The devil looked to his followers and said, now this is the sort of thing that I would recommend. Now, I suspect that everyone in here has, at some point in time, even today, experienced temptation. And I'm guessing you've also numerous times experienced the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment of actually being overcome by it. In our passage today, we're going to look at Jesus' encounter with Satan in the wilderness, as was read for us. But before we get there, let me lay a little groundwork that might that we might be able to better appreciate and understand Jesus' temptation or his test in the wilderness. Jesus had a brother named James, and James also wrote a book. Jesus didn't write a book, but James did write a, write a book in the New Testament called the book of James. And here's what James writes to the church in the first chapter. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away by or enticed by his own evil desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So James tells us that temptation that we've all experienced begins with desire. We all have desire. Sometimes we desire to be loved and cared for. And sometimes, if you're a 10-year-old boy who lives in my house, you desire to have money. He's a good kid. Much of what we desire is actually good and necessary, and it has a legitimate place of fulfillment in our lives. But James notes that temptation leads us to sin when our desires get the best of us. In our current Western secular culture, the mantra is, if it feels good, do it. Every desire that you have should and ought to be fulfilled. No seatbelts. It's not supposed to be tethered or grounded to anything. If it feels good, do it. Fulfill your desire. In certain Eastern religions like Buddhism, desire actually, they believe, lies at the root of all suffering. And so the goal is to actually extinguish your desire because it's desire that brings you problems. But for the Christian... For those of us who follow Jesus, desire is a part of how God created human beings. And this means that our desires, though they are good and have a proper role in our lives, they must be tethered to God's word. If not, we will be tempted, we will sin, and ultimately we will die. And we know that's where we're headed because something went 
really, really wrong. And so I would suggest that temptation leads us down the path of sin and death the moment our desires move us to attain, acquire, or partake of something outside of the purpose that God intended it for or in direct defiance to what God's Word has actually commanded us to abstain from. My kids love to eat snacks. All day long is snack time. Daddy, can I have this? Mommy, can I have this? Um, and I'm glad because we love dessert in our home. Dessert every night. It just, that's just how we are. Don't judge us. <laughs> the fact that my children desire to have ice cream is not a, a sin or a temptation in and of itself unless it requires them to disobey their mother's command that they are not to eat ice cream before dinner. And so the desire for ice cream, I would say, is good. I'd say it's a gift from God. Imagine that God would create us to actually be able to taste food. He could have just made it functional. No, but he is good. And he gives us these desires. But my kids know better that to not tether their desires to what mom or dad has said will lead them to sin. We won't kill them, don't worry. We won't lead them to death. But that's where our sin will take us before God. And so let me say that every temptation that we undergo in this life will prove, one, to enslave us to the world, the flesh, and the devil, which, as the Bible says, are our three enemies, solidifying our dependence on something or someone else other than Jesus. So that's what our temptations will do. Or they will, too, deepen our dependence on the Spirit of God and drive us towards Jesus for His mercy and for His power. And so now, as we get ready to look at the text, let me ask this question. Did Jesus, because we learned a minute ago that Jesus is divine, did Jesus not succumb to temptation, or we know this, because he couldn't? Some suggest that since we Christians believe that Jesus is truly divine, then the temptations he faced were not really temptations. Let me read to you a portion of the creed that the church adopted in the 5th century at the Council of Chalcedon. Here's what they say about this mystery we call the Incarnation. It's a mystery that in the one person of Jesus exists two natures. The fact that when he was here on earth, he was fully divine and he was fully man. And so here's what the creed says. We all with one accord teach men to acknowledge the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. He is one substance with the Father as it regards his Godhead. And at the same time, one substance with us as it regards his manhood. Like us in all respects except for sin. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, yet as regards his humanity, begotten for us men and for our salvation through Mary, the Virgin. And so in Christ, the Son, the Lord, the only begotten, we recognize two natures. And these two natures that exist in the one person of Jesus are without confusion, without mixture, without division, and without separation. In other words, this is a mystery that if you try to solve, you end up reducing to Jesus that something he is not. And so in other words, what I'm trying to tell you, friends, is that Jesus' divinity did not swallow up his humanity. His temptations were real. As the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
And so with that, let's look to that passage that Lindsay read for us from Mark and from Matthew. Mark tells us that immediately the Spirit impelled Jesus, caused him and urged him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, the Matthew passage was read for us. This, this uh, record of this point in time in Jesus' life is recorded for us, Matthew, Mark, and in Luke chapter 4 as well. And so I'm going to be working primarily from Matthew's gospel because he gives us a fuller account of this encounter that Jesus has. Let me just note two things. Um, first, Jesus is in the wilderness, which if you were an Israelite or you were a Jew at the time, you would have went back to that time of the 40 years where God's people, Israel, were wandering. Okay, Mark also says something that is interesting. He says, wild beasts. Anytime I read a text of Scripture, and maybe anytime you read a text of Scripture, you ask, why is that there? There's another place that tells us this area or this land that Jesus was in was named Jeshemin. It means a place of devastation. This is where the Spirit leads Jesus to be tempted. And so Jesus is alone. He is in the wilderness. He is with beasts. And then all three authors also note something else. And this will help us to understand what's going on. Mark notes that Jesus was there for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And so does Matthew and Luke. And so there's something peculiar about this um, number 40 as it relates to Scripture. If you remember in Noah's flood, it started to rain. How many days and nights did it rain? For 40. When Moses killed the Egyptian, he headed to Midian. He fled there. You know how many years he lived there? 40. God sent him to Egypt. He delivered God's people, and he went up to Mount Sinai. How long was he there? What happened when he came down? The people sinned. Dropped the tablets. He was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? He heads back up to the mountain to intercede on behalf of his people. You know how long he was there? 40 days, 40 nights. Remember when they went to go spy out the land, Joshua and his friends, how long were they out there? 40 days. There's, there's a theme. There's a theme. The Philistines captured Israel until Samson delivered them for 40 years. David, do you know the time between Goliath starting to taunt Israel's army and David defeating Goliath? 40 days. Remember when Jonah disobeyed the Lord and finally went to Nineveh? What did he say to Nineveh? 40 days. If you don't repent in 40 days. And now here we are. Our Lord is in the wilderness for 40 days. And there's another 40-day period. And it actually goes the time in between Jesus' bodily resurrection and his ascension. And if you add it together, if Jesus died around 30 AD, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The Lord was destroying the temple so that the Jewish people would actually believe in the Messiah because they could no longer offer sacrifices. And so that's not in Scripture, but I'm taking the liberty to go there because Jesus is the true sacrifice. And so why do I give this to you? Because the, the Bible helps us to understand that the number 40 in Scripture is usually an indicator of judgment, preparation, or trial. And we know Jesus is not under judgment. He's going to be on the cross, but not here in the wilderness. He is facing a trial. The, por- the period of 40 days for Jesus was a test. And in this test, Jesus faced what Adam faced in the garden, if you remember that story. In this test, Jesus faced what the Israelites faced in the 
wandering in the wilderness. And in this test, Jesus faced what we face every day. And what test is that? That test is whose word gives life or whose word will you trust? One day in 1850, a huge crowd, or I think it was actually 1860, a huge crowd gathered to watch the famous French tightrope walker Charles Blondin cross Niagara Falls. He crossed numerous times. It was a 1,000-foot trip, 160 feet above the falls. Everybody stared in amazement. And after completing it for a second time with a wheelbarrow, he came across... And there was a little kid who just couldn't keep his eyes off of him. And he looks to the little kid and he says, do you believe that I can take somebody in this wheelbarrow across the falls without falling? And the kid says, I believe it. And he says, well, why don't you get in? Friends, the father is pushing the wheelbarrow in the desert and he is telling Jesus to get in. And Jesus is going to show us of his trust in the Father and in his word. And so the first test, the tempter comes to Jesus. This is found in verse 3 of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 4. The tempter came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word, on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, when Satan said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, I'm quite sure Satan isn't doubting who Jesus is. In fact, it's often the case that Satan and the demons have better theology than those who follow Jesus. They know exactly who he is. But what Satan wants to do is test what kind of son Jesus will be. And so he begins his attack on Jesus by tempting Jesus in what could have been his most vulnerable moment. He was hungry. It was simple. Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights. And I think the enemy probably thought to himself, this will be easy. He's hungry. Most of you are usually grumpy if you haven't had breakfast by lunchtime. And yet our Lord committed to no food for 40 days. And so what does the enemy tell him to do? Turn these stones to bread. It's interesting, if you go to Matthew chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist. Pastor Stan, this past Sunday, uh, took us through the baptism of Jesus. But before Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist saw some of the Sadducees and the Pharisees coming down as people were being baptized by John. Now, John called them out because if you go through the Gospels, you'll note that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were often religious hypocrites. And so he sees them coming down. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You should keep, bear fruit, keeping with repentance. And he says, don't suppose that you can say to yourselves, because he knew that these Sadducees and Pharisees were not going to want to be baptized. And so he said to them, don't think that you can say to yourselves, well, we're the children of Abraham, or we have Abraham as our father. And then John says to them, I say to you, That from these stones, God can raise children of Abraham. And so the enemy knows Jesus has the power, being fully divine, to turn these stones into bread. We know that. The Son of God is able to turn stones 
to bread. But will he? Absolutely not. Though Jesus is hungry, and though his desire to eat is not sinful, he will not eat until his appointed time of testing is over. And what does he do? He quotes the scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, and he says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Had Jesus not gotten in the wheelbarrow that the Father was pushing, he would have turned those stones into bread. But he didn't. Test one passed. Test two. The devil took him into that holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And the enemy said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will, they will not strike that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This test basically is, Do you trust God with your life? If so, prove it. Now there's a slight progression in the nature of the temptations that the enemy is bringing to Jesus. In the first, the enemy tried to capitalize on Jesus' desire. He was hungry, his physical needs. And in the second temptation, the enemy is now on to Jesus' game. He knows the Scripture. And so he tries to use the Scripture to undermine Jesus. Satan is actually quoting a direct quote from Psalm 91. This psalm describes God's ongoing protection of his people from the surrounding dangers. And this included the ministry of the angels. Jesus isn't having it. And Jesus would affirm and believes that the Father is sovereignly protecting his people and his anointed one. But Jesus reminds us that God's subjects, that is you and I, that is his created order, they have no right, we have no right to put God to the test. God is not pleased when we manufacture situations to try to get him to act. God does not work that way. He will not be mocked. When we do this, and when the enemy did this, it simply revealed the sinful heart of man and the evil intentions of the enemy. And it assumes that God owes us something. He does not. Jesus passes the second test. In verse 8 it says, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The progression of Satan's temptations comes to its climax. All of his previous attempts to get Jesus to sin have gone bankrupt. In fact, I think here, just in my own little mind, the enemy is just exasperated. He has an opponent who won't lose. And so he just says to Jesus what he's been trying to say the whole time. Just worship me, Jesus. Just worship me. That's what he wanted from the very beginning. But he's a soothsayer. He's a politician. He tells you what you want to hear when you want to hear it. So that he can get what he wants and then dispose of you. That's how the enemy operates. He hates Jesus. 
In verse 11, it says, The devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. How ironic that God would actually fulfill in this moment what Satan had earlier tried to test Jesus with. This is how God works. Not according to the wisdom of man or of the evil one, but according to his own purpose. And so friends, as we have seen Jesus undergo this test, let me ask you this question. Why did Jesus have to undergo this test? What was the purpose? A story came not too long after the great 1988 earthquake that just about decimated the city of Spitak, Armenia. The death toll of this earthquake was upwards of 50,000, with approximately 130,000 left injured. Shortly after the quake, a father arose from his home and ran to the school that his son attended. Upon Upon arriving, he noticed that the building was basically in rubble. With tears in his eyes, he ran to the right corner of the building because he often walked his son to school, and this is where his classroom was. He began digging and pulling out rubble. Other parents came and watched in confusion, despair, and hopelessness. He was told and encouraged by some parents just to stop, just accept what happened. Our children are gone. The fire chief even told him, look, There's explosions and fires going off in all sorts of places. Stop. Just stop. You're putting yourself in danger. And the father wouldn't listen. He dug for eight hours. Eight hours turned into 16 hours. 16 hours turned into 32 hours. And at the 38th hour, he pulled a big piece of brick and rubble off, and he heard something. And in desperation, he simply yelled his son's name. Armad! In what seemed like forever, the father heard his son's voice. Dad, it's me. There's only 14 left. We're scared, and we're thirsty, and we're hungry. Moments later, the 14 kids were able to crawl out of a little triangle that was there in the rubble. Friends, Jesus had to be tested so that you and I could be rescued from the rubble. The rubble of lies that Satan told and that we believed. He had to be tested in order to save us from the sin and death that ensued because of our inability and unwillingness to obey him. Of our inability and unwillingness to trust his word. Take heart, friends, even though we failed the test. And even though we struggle today today to even pass the test of our own temptation, Jesus passed the test. And like the father who worked tirelessly to save his son from certain death, from that rubble that would have collapsed, Jesus has done all that the father has required of him so that you and I could be saved from the bondage to Satan, from the dominion of sin, and from the sting of death. So let me end by encouraging you to renew your commitment to fight temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Though Jesus has defeated Satan in this life, the enemy is still working to deceive you and me. 
He hates Jesus, and he hates that you and I love Jesus and seek to follow him. But one thing he knows about us is that sometimes we still love our sin. Last week, Pastor Stan shared with us, and you'll see these signs out in the student center. They're called the marks of discipleship. These are the things that we say that if you seek to do regularly, you can trust that the Spirit will be at work in you to make you more like Jesus. And one of those marks is that it says that we love Jesus more than sin. Because the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes we love our sin. That's that desire in us. And the enemy knows this, and this is what he's going to try to do. Like that certain holy man, he's going to find your vice. He's going to find out what it is that you struggle with. He's not going to be too crude if you're somebody who hates crudeness. He's going to try to get you where it hurts. And so let us remember that when the Holy Spirit came in and regenerated our hearts and renewed us, he gave us new desires, and he also gives us his power. And as we work to obey Jesus, these desires are strengthened and we grow in God's grace to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. Jesus was tested so that you and I could have the fruit of his spirit in our lives to ward off temptation. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we want to say thank you for your strength. We want to say thank you for committing yourself to the will of the Father and to undergo this test. We thank you, Father, that you were holding the wheelbarrow that our Lord was in and that, Holy Spirit, you were leading Jesus. And this is what we desire, Lord, to show our allegiance to you. We pray that you would help us in our times of temptation. For many of us have even failed today, Lord. Renew our hope and our fight. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are pleased to live in us, even when we do that which is not pleasing. Renew our hearts, that we would give ourselves over to holy living, that we would do what is right according to you. And Father, protect us. We know that you will and have protected us. Give us strength for the task of making disciples of all nations, Lord. Help us to do it in your power, not ours. Thank you again, Jesus. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.